Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced by PolicyForum.net and we are based at ANU Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us and our range of short courses and degree programs on our website, crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you will have noticed that we are now recording all of our episodes remotely so that our team and our panelists can do their work from the safety of their own homes. And like everyone throughout this crisis, we're having to discover new ways of doing things. And as you will all know, that is not without its challenges. But rest assured, we're doing everything we can to bring you the informed, policy-relevant conversations you're used to and love with the highest production quality that we can manage. In order to do that, we've recorded today's episodes in two parts. Coming up later, we're going to take a look at how experts suggest we talk to our children about the coronavirus crisis and what policymakers can do to help with those conversations. First, though, we want to have a look into the psychology of uncertainty, what impact these mixed messages are having on people's feeling of security and what policymakers and politicians could do to improve their messaging. Ever since the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak, many people have been feeling that the messages they're hearing from government have been mixed. Uh, Messaging around school closures, for example, left many Australian parents feeling insecure. Internationally, many countries have decided to shut down their schools and move to online teaching, whereas states within Australia have made a range of different decisions, from keeping schools open to going pupil-free to entirely shutting them down. So on this first part of the pod, we're asking, how can policymakers and politicians improve their messaging to make people feel safer? And to help us answer these questions, I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Smithson. Michael is a professor and associate director of research at the ANU Research School of Psychology, and he's also a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Michael, it's great to have you. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So how have you been dealing with working from home so far? Well, um, actually, I've worked quite a bit from home before. So it really was mainly a question of uh, shifting my office uh, computer and uh, and a few other things out here uh, to my home. Uh, but I've been surprised actually at how much I've missed face-to-face contact with people. And I, you know, I'm, I'm speaking as a card-carrying introvert. Basically, I'm okay about working on my own, but I have actually missed just being able to chat with and see people face-to-face. So have you adopted any particular tactics to try and uh, counter that? Have, have the Zoom meetings helped? Uh, yes, Zoom meetings have helped. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, amongst my work colleagues and friends, we've just, uh, we've basically all signed on to Zoom and have got that going. And uh, we're 
we're having that suffice. So we have you know sort of sort of uh, virtual coffee sessions and that sort of thing. Terrific. Michael, the Australian federal and state governments have been criticised on a range of fronts for sending mixed messages, particularly around uh, school closures and online learning. How do those types of confused messages impact people's well-being? Well, um, obviously, uh, this is a very uncertain time for a lot of people for, for very good reasons. Some of the research that I've done on how people think about and respond to uncertainty uh, has demonstrated pretty clearly that uncertainty arising from conflicting information, uh, such as mixed messages, is viewed by a lot of people as as the worst kind, worse than, uh, say, for example, uncertainty arising from ambiguous or vague messages. So I suspect that that, um, getting uncertain messages that that involve conflicting information probably would have the biggest impact, the biggest negative impact that um, uh, any kind of uncertain messages would. But many things in our lives are uncertain. So how does what we're hearing at the moment differ from the other types of uncertainty that we experience on a daily basis? Well, um, I guess one thing to bear in mind is that there, there are such things as good unknowns as well as bad ones. Uh, so, you know, everyday examples of Good unknowns are uh, pleasant surprises, for instance. Somebody gives you an unexpected gift uh, or things that make you curious and want to find out about them. Um, uh, you know, those, those sorts of things are, are unknowns that can occur in, in everyday life that actually uh, tend to have a good impact on people. Then, of course, there are uh, negative unknowns. Um, uh, for example, uh, not, not being sure if you're going to get to work on time or uh, not being sure uh, whether somebody's going to get uh, something done that you need done on time and those sorts of things. What probably mostly differs uh, with uncertainty around COVID-19 are two things. One is the, uh, the, the greater tendency for there to be conflicting messages about, um, about the nature of the disease, um, initially what to do uh, to uh, prevent uh, prevent yourself from getting it um, uh, what was going to happen with various uh, line, various industries various lines of work and so on and also just the magnitude of the potential consequences so this is uncertain these are uncertainties that involve people not only getting ill but potentially dying as well uh, and so th- that combination of um, of a lot of conflicting uncertainty and the uh, the, the sense of you know, very serious consequences being involved distinguishes this kind of uncertainty from the, the sorts that um, most of us have kind of rummaging around in everyday life. I mean, this is a particularly unusual type of situation we're all in because we hear everyone say, you know, we're all in this together, you know, it it will take the community to kind of pull together. Yet the messaging is that you have to isolate yourself. You have to be away from other people. So what is that what is that isolation factor playing into um how people are experiencing this uncertainty? I think some aspects of that probably aren't known yet. That's one of the things that um, uh, I know that a a number of uh, psychological researchers are interested in following up by way of tracking uh, the impact of COVID-19 on people's mental health. One 
possible uh, factor that plays into it is that insofar as people are socially isolated, insofar as they really are isolated, they're a little more likely to become suggestible. Uh, so uh, they'll be more inclined to, you know, really grab onto any anything that looks like information about the nature of the disease, how fast it's spreading, uh, what the mortality rate is, uh, the likelihood that they might get it, um, the sorts of things they can do to prevent themselves from getting it, and so on. And this this is in the context of even understandably having experts disagreeing about a number of these things. So, for example, of as of uh, the middle of March, uh, there was a really interesting survey of 20 COVID-19 uh, experts um, based in the U.S. And their uh, estimates of the number of their predictions of the number of total cases in the U.S. Um, by March 29th ranged from 10,000 to 75,000. And by the way, the official number on March 29th actually turned out to be 143,500. So they were so all of them were underestimating it. So if people are potentially more suggestible when they are isolated from other people, then that puts a real emphasis on government messaging being appropriate and and clear to people. So how can the government go about improving its messaging to prevent confusion and, and negative impacts on people's mental health? Well, what, one thing that the uh, the government can do and that a number of um, a number of stakeholders have been asking the government to do is to provide wherever possible a coherent uh, consensus message. In other words, not to have different uh, ministers or people from different uh, political parties saying different things about uh, what the public should do or what the impact of the disease might be. And secondly, uh, where possible to use sources of the messages that people are going to trust. Uh, and the government has been doing that to some extent. They're increasingly relying on having medical experts um, directly report things to the public or give messages to the government that they then pass on to the public. Uh, one of the difficulties that, a real difficulty that disagreeing uh, experts face is that if if experts disagree, then what the public tends to do is they tend to start distrusting the experts. Right there's most of us have a kind of a, a heuristic about experts that says, well, you know, these are experts. They they all have access to the same information. So if they're experts, they should agree with one another. So if experts are disagreeing, then we tend to start saying, hey, well, hang on, uh, well, these these guys aren't agreeing with one another. So maybe none of them really know what's going on. But I mean, isn't it kind of uh, inevitable in this sort of environment where we're dealing with? A novel virus. It's a, it's a brand new virus. We don't yet know all of the evidence around, you know, its transmission rates and you know its more its mortality rate. It's kind of inevitable that experts are going to disagree on this stuff. Absolutely, and this so this creates a kind of a communication dilemma for them. Uh, if let's say let's say for a moment that you and I are experts and we are aware that we disagree with one another about, uh, say, the rate of increase of COVID-19 uh, in Australia. If each of us goes out and gives public messages where we go in hard and state our own positions, then the, the public uh, lay people will see that we disagree with one another and we'll both suffer um, you know, loss in credibility and trust. So one thing we can do 
is to concede at least a few points to one another. So in other words, we could say something like, you know, well, my best estimate is, is X, but, but um, this other expert has a different view and, and I'll allow that it's possible that it could be, you know, that that, that, that expert could be right. Um, uh, my view should not be regarded as being precise. We really don't know about this. And therefore, we have to allow for you know, some more time and some more data before we're going to get a clear picture of what's going on. So in other words, if the, if the experts can convey something to the public about um, the uncertainty, even if they're able just to say that they agree that the situation is quite uncertain, then that can help. So we've talked about what governments could be doing and indeed what experts uh, could be doing as well. What about on an individual level? What tips do you have for individuals to remain positive and, uh, and be able to make decisions despite the uncertainty caused by this outbreak and the messaging around it? Well, one, um, I think one thing that can help quite a bit is, is for, um, uh, for individuals to figure out when they really need to make a decision about what to do based on the information they're getting. So, and so if they're just following the course of COVID-19, for instance, and they don't, um, they already already have their uh, social isolation practices in place and so on and so forth. So they're just getting information and they don't need to make decisions based on that information. Then um, they, they can tell themselves, well, Look, I don't have to decide anything yet, even though the information I'm getting is is conflicting and uncertain, and so on. I'll just observe it, have a look at it. Um, I'll I'll be interested in whether you know how long it takes for experts, for example, to get to a consensus about these issues. If, on the other hand, they do have to make decisions, then um, one uh, one possibility is something that you see some people uh, talking about in various. Um, uh, various posts and social media and also journalists as well talking about. And that is the the old recipe to plan for the worst and hope for the best. So if you've got conflicting estimates about um, about the best things to do, um, then you might uh, justifiably say, well, I'll pick the one that's the most conservative, that is uh, the most risk averse. I'll, I'll use that as my as my guide, but I'll hope that things aren't going to be as bad as um, as the worst case scenario. But just to be safe, I'll plan my behavior as if that might turn out to be the case. So plan for the worst and hope for the best. Yes. And, and also, um, just as a third point, uh, it, it, um, it can help individuals if they look for the kinds of indicators that can give them some hope. For instance, um, there's kind of an emerging um, uh, narrative in some in some areas, in some posts on the social media, that are talking about hope. You know, how are we going to come out of this? Are we going to come out of this more adaptive and more reliant uh, on ourselves than we were before? Are we going to pick up new skills as a result of this? Uh, are we going to find new ways of being able to interact with one another, one another successfully because of this? So those are kind of hopeful things to look at. I am interested as well in the effect on the sort of 24 hour news cycle and people's consumption of information. I mean, we are 
bombarded with news updates when I got up this morning. I checked, you know, the Guardian's live blog. I read their international updates of, you know, the terrible news from all around the world. I watched Twitter, you know, throughout the day and get this constant stream of messaging. Would you recommend that people tune out more often to avoid getting too message too many messages? Well, there there are a couple of strategies that uh, people can use to militate against the the barrage of uh, messages, especially uh, especially against getting a lot of conflicting ones. One of them is to tune out periodically. So uh, so one thing I do is I allocate only specific periods of time during the day uh, to be the ones where I'm going to uh, to uh, go in and have a look at what's going on, the latest news feeds, and so on. I can empathize with people being concerned about uh, what's happening elsewhere. My family is, as you can tell from my accent, over in the U.S. And uh, frankly, looking at the growth curve in the U.S. is terrifying um, to behold. So I'm very concerned about that. But I make it my own policy not to keep looking at the news feed about what's going on in the U.S. all the time. Instead, I do that at particular times of the day. And the rest of the time, I screen that out and get on and do other things. Um, The second thing that people can do is to pick the news feed or feeds that they believe are the most reliable and to to really focus on those rather than than trying to take in all the landscape of of social media, for example, or or even of mainstream, uh, mainstream media. And that way they can get what probably will be a relatively consistent line of, of, uh, of news and narrative about what's going on. And finally, Michael, I mean, this, this podcast goes out to a policy audience, you know, perhaps policymakers and people engaged in policy in some way. What would be your one key recommendation to them to help improve the uncertainty that uh, is kicking around the uh, coronavirus crisis? Well, I, I guess I would, <laughs> I would, I would probably put something in that is a one-liner that's kind of double-barreled. I would, I would say something like, uh, when you're communicating with the public, be clear, consistent, and if you don't know, admit that you don't know. I think we could all do with a little more of that in the public sphere at the moment. Thank you so much, Michael, for uh, joining us in our virtual studio today. I hope you uh, stay safe and I hope your family in the US is safe and well. Uh, It's it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, you stay safe and stay well also. Well, let's take a quick break there, but join us again afterwards as we take a look at how to talk with children about the COVID-19 crisis. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. 
Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, with more and more schools moving to online learning and children having to stay home as a consequence, even the youngest amongst them have been noticing that the world is changing around them. This week, experts from the ANU warned of the risk of emotional trauma due to family and community distress caused by the coronavirus pandemic and spoke about the challenges parents are grappling with when it comes to finding age-appropriate ways to talk to their children about the issue. So in part two, we want to find out how parents can best talk to children about COVID-19 and whether there's anything policymakers can do to lift the burden on children's mental health. And to talk about this really important topic, I'm delighted to welcome Nicola Palfrey. Nicola is the Director of the Australian Child and Adolescent Trauma Loss and Grief Network at the ANU College of Health and Medicine, and she's also a clinical psychologist and a Churchill Fellow. So hello, Nicola. Hello, good morning. It's great to have you with us today. This week, you and other experts warned that children are at risk of emotional trauma due to family and community distress caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Can you tell us a bit more about how the COVID-19 crisis affects children's mental health? One of the biggest influences is the fact that we know that adults' mental health, particularly parents or carers' mental health, has a really significant impact on children's well-being. And so because this situation is impacting everybody globally, um, in particular the adults in the household who are home much more than usual with children, then our concern is that the flow-on effects for children. So they have their own response to what's going on about being at home, missing out on seeing friends or loved ones and activities, but also being exposed to potentially quite a lot of tension in the household or worry or anxiety of the, the adults in their lives. So you can have a bit of a, a double whammy going on there. Now, of course, as you said there, many children are no longer going to school. That means they can't meet their friends daily face to face. How does that sort of isolation affect children? Well, I think it is variable. So for some children who may be more on the introverted scale and can be quite content having some time by themselves, might be enjoying actually a little bit of downtime and um, not the actual stress that they find of social interactions. But then for the other kids who really thrive off that interaction, and we all know who they are, we know who the introverts and extroverts in our uh, families and, and social groups are, it can be quite stressful and feel quite lonely and isolating. So Kids that are a bit older might still be able to connect online. They're pretty good at that sort of thing. They still feel it, though. Um, but little kids, they might be really missing those interactions. It's where they get energy from. It's where they get fun from. It's where they get laughter from. And those are all really important for their well-being and their development. So some of those kids might be really missing out on, on the play that they have with their friends at school at the moment or early childhood centres, those sorts of things. Now, parents are having to make some very difficult choices here about how they talk to their kids about what's going on with the coronavirus crisis. And there might be some parents there who use the strategy of trying to shield their kids from bad news. Is that the right way to go about this situation at the moment? Well, I think this is a circumstance we can't shield kids from. Like if there's an incident in extended family or an event that's happening a long way away, then we can protect our kids to a certain extent. But this is 
this is just not possible. Even the youngest of kids, there's been a change in all of our lives. They just need to look outside and uh, they'll notice that they're not going to the playground, that mum and dad are at home or that they haven't seen their grandparents or auntie and uncle for a period of time where they usually do. So while we want them to be protected from bad news, what we can do inadvertently is leave them to try and sort out what's happening in their own mind and that often is inaccurate and it can be much worse. I mean, this is a pretty pretty striking and serious time, but you can imagine that if kids were left to understand what was going on for themselves, they're gonna take snippets of messages and it'll be very easy for them to come to the conclusion that everybody's getting this virus and everybody that gets it is going to die. And that's simply not accurate and it's certainly not helpful. So we need to give our kids information that they can take in at the, the level they're at using maybe examples that make sense to them um, and give them a chance to ask questions so we can get rid of any of those misconceptions but also provide some reassurance for them about what we do know and what's being done to help people. So uh, from your experience, how do children across different age groups respond to talking to them about the COVID-19 crisis? Well, I think younger kids, they tend to flick in and out of things. So they might be very confused about why everybody is home or why they have to wash their hands all the time. But often some reassurance, this is why we're doing it. There's a bad uh germ going around at the moment we've always washed our hands that's important people are getting sick with a cold and so we need to stay at home and make sure everybody's um, looked after now that's probably as much as they want to take in they'll be off to the next activity by then they'll be asking next something else about a jigsaw puzzle or something else whereas as we get through primary school age children they may be more um, across what's going on Uh, they are be aware as you said often um, they're not in school or there's restricted school hours for certain um, children so they need some more information they need some information about uh, what's happening uh, what we do know and what we don't know giving them information again using examples by that that age they will have known someone who's had a bad flu or had a, a, a tummy bug or something like that so giving them an example of something that they've experienced, giving them information about what's being done, that the scientists are working really hard and the medical staff are working really hard to keep on top of that. And the more we can stay at home and look after each other, um, the sooner this will be over. So giving them some context and information. And as we go up to upper primary and into high school, then you can have more detailed conversations if kids are interested in it. And it's good to check in with those kids, they might be keeping to themselves a bit more, that they know that this might be tense, but they might be keeping things to themselves. So we can't assume just because some of the older kids are maybe not expressing their concerns so um, outwardly as some of the younger kids are, we want to check in with them and see how they're feeling about it as well. Now, a, a lot of kids are quite resilient and when you give them new information, they process it pretty quickly and then they can kind of move on and, and carry on with their lives. But there'll be some kids out there, particularly when you're talking about a crisis like this, which is actually kind of taking people's lives, who will find that information quite difficult to process. So what about for, for, the, for parents with those types of kids? How can they go about reassuring their kids whilst also kind of getting across the gravity of the situation yeah I think that's right I think and one of the the conundrums in those situations is if you have a child who's particularly prone to anxiety say or worry that tends to come from somewhere and it's often um, 
parents as well that, that can have those uh, similar traits. So you might have a, a quite an anxious parent and an anxious child trying to have a conversation and that may exacerbate things. So in those circumstances, if you as an adult in that situation are feeling a little bit panicky, a little bit overwhelmed by it, that is when you want to reach out. So often when you'll feel that way, you might have a friend, you might have an uncle, you might have um, a neighbour that you could call upon um, to, to have a chat with and have a chat to you and your child together or to your child. Another trusted adult can provide that calming information. They may have a particular um, bent on it, so they may be have a medical background or they might have some great understanding about uh, how these sorts of things have worked in the past, some historical perspective from maybe an elder relative. Utilising the resources we have within our networks, because we can't always do everything perfectly as a parent and you can't do it before this crisis and we won't be able to do it afterwards. So thinking about am I in a state where I can have this conversation? If I'm not, who can I enlist to help me have that conversation? We also know that kids often listen to others <laughs> more than they listen to their parents. So sometimes it can provide that legitimacy or that extra um, reassurance. But I think talking when you are calm, trying not to spread panic is really important um, and giving factual information and also pointing to what is being done um, and how you can kind of steer the conversation, I suppose. There's a lot of effort being made into, to show positive images or kind of amazing images of these big cities around the world that are deserted. So trying to give some information, validate that people are worried, that kids are worried and concerned, but also moving the conversation on to, to what else is going on and what um, are the, the unexpected benefits, I suppose, whether it be for the environment or for innovative ways of connecting. So you moving conversations on so we're not sitting in that kind of sense of hopelessness, which is where it can get very over, over overwhelming for people. Now, we've talked a lot about what parents could be doing in terms of communicating the crisis to children. But what about policymakers? Is there anything that they could be doing to lift the burden of the COVID-19 crisis on, on children's mental health and, and indeed helping parents? I think one of the things that has struck me in, in talking with communities and we've been um, having conversations in, uh, in our work supporting communities that have, uh, are trying to recover from the bushfires over the summer. So you have some communities where you have this layer on layer on layer, drought, bushfire, uh, floods in some cases and now COVID-19. What we're talking about there in those communities is the need for support at all levels and what we mean by that for the individual child, for the family, for the, say, the educators, for the school leaders, for the community leaders. And so I think for policymakers, it's thinking about when we're communicating public health messages, what messages are we communicating? I think there is a really strong influence on mental health and wellbeing, but I think taking that debt, what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean in terms of how we expect adults at home to be interacting with their their children there's a lot of chatter about you know part of it with a wry smile about the challenges of home parenting what we actually need is to to try and preserve mental health and and kind of prevent a, a real spike in in poor mental health is connection and relationships and fun we talked earlier about what little kids will miss they miss playing so i think policymakers giving explicit messages about the legitimacy of allowing parents to be not perfect, to take some time out and throw away 
the tests for a little while and, and educators to be able to have that message and they're not going to get online um, teaching perfect in a week. You know, this is something that would have taken years and years and years for them to look at. So I think messaging around doing what we can, there's a strong message about we're all in this together, but a message around what are we expecting of each other at this time and what is acceptable um, and what is priority. And priority has to be looking after ourselves, looking after our own wellbeing, pausing every now and then and uh, having some having a laugh, as you say, watching a movie, those sorts of things. But the specifics of that I think is really important. So policymakers working out how to give some of that specific advice and also within the systems, so whether it be the, the education system comes to mind, obviously the health system are under incredible stress and strain, but what can we do in terms of the leaders in those positions and the workers feeling supported by the systems around them? Um, so the the principals need to know that the people up the ranks in education have their back, for example, as do the educators need to know the principals have their back. So that at each level, I suppose, trying to think about how we commu communicate what is vital, what is not vital at this time, um, and reinforcing that the the notion that we're all doing the best we can with what we've got at the moment. Well, lots of great advice, both for policymakers and parents in there. So thank you so much, Nicola, for uh, taking the time to talk with us today. It's really appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And good luck, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Listeners, don't forget to get in touch with us. Virtually only, of course, we're on Twitter as APPS Policy Forum or just send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net or even better yet, join our online community on Facebook. You can find us, that is our team members and around 500 of our listeners by typing in Policy Forum Pod into your search bar on Facebook. We promise to do our best to keep you entertained with heaps of interesting podcasts and discussion during this really difficult time. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please don't forget to subscribe to Policy Forum Pod. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your pod fix from. And please also leave us a quick review we're always keen to hear what you think about our podcasts. Now, if you or anyone you know are struggling, you can contact Lifeline or Beyond Blue. Links and phone numbers for both organisations are in the show notes. We've also included some links to uh, some specific resources related to looking after your mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, stay home, stay healthy and cheerio for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.